Let's uh, remain in an attitude of prayer as we uh, come before the Lord. Oh, Heavenly Father, we want to apply those words to our, our own lives. We do want to turn our eyes to you. We want to lift our gaze to Jesus because he is our only hope, our only Savior, our only God. And we turn to him because we need you so badly. Lord, I pray that each person here might feel the encouragement of the Lord walking towards them with fresh grace, fresh strength, fresh power for the weeks and days and years that lie ahead. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, do take your, uh, your seats and keep your Bibles open on that passage from uh, John's Gospel, chapter 21, which we'll be looking at this evening. Someone uh, uh, said to me, I presume that, that you're starting a new series um, because we had a lovely meal last week. Wasn't it lovely? Um, and uh, uh, no, um, there isn't a meal uh, tonight. And yes, we are still in Taste and See. So either regard this as the coffee or the cheese or the after eight mints or something repeating on you. But uh, we're looking, uh, let me ask you uh, a question. What is the best thing that you have ever tasted? What is it that's left you with a lasting memory in your mind when you savored it? Well, for our 30th wedding anniversary last April, uh, Vicky and I went to a small village of uh, Bruton in Somerset, and we spent four days there. On our first day, we decided to go to a, a small uh, farm uh, shop and chose the roast beef bun. This is a picture of us there with the roast beef bun. I know that it doesn't look that magnificent, but I can tell you this. My taste buds have never tingled quite so much as with that. I salivated just thinking about this bun. It was just spectacular. For the next three days, we went back to the same farm shop and had exactly the same bun. It was just so tasty. It was extraordinary. And indeed, I am salivating with the thought of it now, and in four weeks' time, I will be enjoying it, because we're going back to that same bun shop. Such was the power of the memory of it. It was the best thing I'd ever tasted. Ah, but there is one thing that eclipses it, one thing more memorable and enjoyable, and that thing is the forgiveness I received from Christ, the forgiveness of Christ, that leaves a far better, enjoyable taste on my soul, forgiveness. As we see here in our passage this evening, and our passage uh, starts with actually bitterness, the bitter taste of disappointment for Peter. 
Look down at verse 1. Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples. This is the third time he's appeared to his disciples. And it's by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon, Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat But that night they caught nothing. The Apostle Peter was always bold and brash and bursting with enthusiasm, wasn't he? He was never slow to speak out or act on account of Jesus. After all, it was Peter who was bold enough to step out onto onto the water to walk towards Jesus. He was the first disciple to announce that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him on that day, upon this confession, I will build my church. And of course, it was Peter who said he would be willing to lay down his life for Jesus. And even if everybody else deserted him, Peter would stand firm. Ah, but look at him now on that seashore. Here we see a dejected man kicking pebbles along the shoreline of Galilee, head downcast, a shadow of his former self. And if you could have looked into his eyes on that day, you would have seen the sparkle would have gone. You see, Peter was still troubled in his heart over his denial of Jesus He felt a failure as as a disciple. When he first met Jesus, he said, uh, Jesus said that he, Peter, would be the fisher of men, launched out into a new ministry. But now he'd felt that he'd blown it. His ministry was surely over. And so he returns to the one thing that he thinks he can still do reasonably well, fishing. And yet, after an exhausting night's fishing of pulling in empty net after empty net, Peter now experiences total failure even in that which he thought he was good at. You know, the psychologist Perry Buffington makes an interesting point about failure. He said this, failures take on a life of their own. Because the brain remembers incomplete tasks or failures longer than any success or completed activity. When a project or a thought is completed, the brain places it in a special memory. The brain no longer gives the project priority. But failures have no closure. And so the brain continues to spin the memory over and over, trying to come up with ways to fix the mess and to move it from the active to inactive status. Well, this was Peter. He just couldn't snap out of the negative replaying of his failure of denying Christ. That crushing memory gnawed away at his conscience every moment of the day. But tell me, is there someone here even this evening who can relate to Peter 
and his experience. Perhaps you were someone who was very active in your Christian uh, faith in your youth, maybe in the Christian union at university. You made bold claims of affirming your allegiance to the Lord no matter what. Nothing would make you turn away from Christ or for knowing God's will for your life. Ah, but then something happened. You fell badly through moral sin or perhaps through ambitions for God's kingdom that got squeezed out for ambitions for your own comfort and kingdom. And now you feel a spiritual failure, relegated to the scrap heap of God's kingdom. Well, for Peter, the record was stuck And he needed somebody to help move on the needle of his life. And that's where Jesus steps in. Look down at verse 4. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat. And he will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped out his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and he jumped into the water. Let's pause there. The story is told that when the great composer Mozart was a little child, he would toddle downstairs in the middle of the night and play an unresolved chord on the harpsichord, knowing that his musical father would hear it upstairs and have to get out of his bed and come downstairs just to resolve it. Well, Jesus is like Mozart's father in this instance. You see, there are some unresolved issues, chords, in Peter's heart and life. And Jesus is coming to resolve that which is incomplete in his life. The resurrected Jesus is standing on the shoreline once again of Peter's life. A Jesus who just a week before had moved a stone that no human could ever shift. The stone of sin and death and hell. This same Jesus was now going to apply his resurrected power to move the obstacles that Peter felt powerless to shift. His failure. And first Jesus actually deals with the disappointing catch. Now, it was customary for fish dealers to greet fishing boats at the very crack of dawn to trade with them. So the disciples might have initially thought that Jesus was probably just a a fish merchant. But Jesus, when he finds out they've caught nothing, gives them advice from the shoreline. He's, nowhere, he's not able to see what they can see in the water, and he just says, just throw your, 
throw your nets over on the other side, on the right side of the boat. You're going to catch. Well, experienced fishermen don't usually take kindly to advice from strangers, especially ones that are standing on the shore. Yet such was their desperation that they just obeyed. And the catch of fish was so enormous, we are told, that they were unable to haul it in. They had to drag it in with the boats. But more than that, we were told that every single fish was large. I love that detail. It was all large. And what is more, there was 153 of them. They counted them all. That was all those nets could ever have held. These were no tiddlers here. This catch was the equivalent of a hole-in-one for a golfer. Instantly, they knew something absolutely extraordinary was happening here. In fact, Jesus was giving them a memory jogger deliberately. You see, he was taking Peter right the way back to his first ever encounter with Jesus when he caught that first ever miraculous catch of fish. And on that occasion, Peter, when he understood who Jesus was, said, keep away from me, Lord, because I am a sinful man. But Peter didn't, Jesus didn't go away from him. He didn't keep away from him then, and he wasn't keeping away from him now. And so Peter immediately, when he recognized it's the Lord, jumps in and swims across to Jesus. He just wanted to be near him. And look what they find when they get ashore. Breakfast. Look at verse 12. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask them, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now, I want you to think about that scene for a moment. Who gathered the wood for that fire? Who caught the fish? Because the fish were already cooking. He never used any of their fish. Who got the bread and was baking it? It was Jesus. He did all of those things. Think of it this way. Jesus had spent his whole life serving and providing for his followers. In the upper room of the last night of his life, he stoops down to wash the dirt off of their feet. In dying on the cross, he was laying down his life for them. He was serving them throughout his whole life. The Son of Man came to, not to be served, but to serve. But even now, in his resurrected and glorified body state, the Son of God is still serving his followers. You could never imagine the queen bringing breakfast in bed to one of our servants, could you? Or the king, as I should say now. But Jesus had gathered the wood, lit the fire, cooked the bread, and serves the fish to his disciples. I don't know if that was the first time that anybody had had Jesus as their chef, 
But it's the only one we've got recorded in the Bible. And you know what? Even in heaven right now, Jesus is still serving you and me if you're a follower. Because we are told in Hebrews that he prays and intercedes for us continually before the Father. He is still the servant king. He still serves us with his constant prayers for us. I wonder what Peter was thinking as he sat gazing over the charcoal fire which Jesus had made. Peter may have well have felt very ashamed, unable to look at Jesus too much, because the last time he was near a charcoal fire looking across into the eyes of Jesus, he was denying that he ever knew him. And what a look from the Lord that was back then in the Jerusalem temple courts. When he saw Jesus looking at him after he denied him the third time, what was that look like from the eyes of Jesus? I do not, do not believe for one moment that it was one of anger, but one of deep disappointment and sorrow. And Peter never forgot that. Peter felt so guilt-ridden that he could barely even look at Jesus now. And so, for one of the few times that we ever encounter it in Peter's life, he is completely silent throughout that whole meal. He doesn't utter a word. Because the moment is too holy for words. Because God is offering him breakfast to the friend who betrayed him. Peter, who on his first encounter with Jesus said, keep away from me, Lord, because I'm a sinful man, is once again finding grace by the Sea of Galilee. As he gazes into the face of Jesus, Peter was too repentant to speak but too hopeful to leave. This was God inviting a sinner to dinner. Jesus was still the friend of sinners. And the thing is that you and I know all too well that it could just as easily have been you or me there sitting in Peter's place for we too have failed God, sometimes terribly so. We at times have felt too ashamed to look him in the face. We at times have asked ourselves, have I outsinned the love of God? Have I outsinned God's grace for me? The astonishing answer is no. The astonishing answer is no. Not if you're repentant and, if you, uh, and you desire with all of your heart to return to him and be close to him and to follow him. 
Someone once said this, failure is never final with God. Failure should be our teacher and not our undertaker. Well, Peter, more than anything else in this world, wanted to be used by Jesus Christ again. And so we see how Jesus restores Peter, not just physically. He now moves on to the more deeper thing of his spiritual restoration. Look down at verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Just look for a moment at how graciously Jesus deals with Peter. Jesus didn't ask Peter, Simon Peter, how much have you wept and groveled on the ground? How often have you punished yourself on account of your great sin against me? How often have you been on your knees asking me for mercy for that terrible cursing that you did when you disowned me? No. No, Jesus doesn't make him feel like a worthless worm. But what he does ask on this, as I believe it was, a private stroll on the beach with Peter is this. Peter, do you love me? That's all I'm asking. Someone once said that you cannot move forward from a point in your history that you have been nailed to. And in these moments, Jesus was taking Peter back to the point where he had remained nailed to, that of his denial of knowing Jesus. A week ago at Jesus' arrest, Peter claimed that he had never even met Jesus, and he swore on it. But these three questions that Jesus was giving to Peter gave him an opportunity to replace the three denials with three affirmations. Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Friends, when we sin, we can be tempted to believe that we have no love for Jesus, and we can write ourselves off as failures. But F.B. Mayer suggests some tests of love for Christ. He says this, Would you be able to enjoy heaven if Christ were not there? Are you glad to hear about Jesus in sermons or in talk so that there is a warmth in your heart at the mention of his name? And does it pain you to hear evil spoken of him? Do you sorrow that you do not love him more? 
If so, then you can challenge him saying, despite my faithlessness and my sins, you know that I love you, Lord. You see, Jesus knew what he was doing with his three times repeated, feed my lambs, take care of my sheep, feed my sheep. He is making it quite clear that he wanted Peter to resume his ministry and to lead his church despite this fall. In effect, Jesus is saying, I'm not asking you to follow me. I'm giving you a responsible task to feed my sheep because I've still got a work and a ministry for you, Peter. Now, let me illustrate the impact of this moment another way. I want you to imagine a man who has stolen money from his employer. Later, he is guilty in his conscience and admits his crime to his employer and hands the money back. His employer says, I forgive you. And to show that, I've decided not to call the police and charge you. But you're sacked, and you're no longer employed by me. Well, that man might well under, understand that he has been let off lightly. But let's suppose instead that the employer says to him, I am disappointed and hurt by what you have done. You have betrayed my trust, but I forgive you. And to demonstrate that, to demonstrate that I've forgiven you, I'm going to put you in charge of my whole financial affairs for the entire company. Now, could that man ever doubt that he had been forgiven? Could he ever doubt that his employee's forgiveness was genuine? Well, of course not. In fact, the employee's act of kindness and the grace ought to spur the employee on onto even greater levels of loyalty than before. That is what is happening here with Peter. Peter Lewis said this, Peter was a leader made to lead and called to serve. He was not to be set aside for a lifetime of shame, shunned by believers and mocked by critics. His sin was serious, terribly so, but God's grace is serious too, wonderfully so. He is to be not only forgiven, but restored. And how wonderfully, how truly, how completely he was restored, as these three repetitions show. Feed my lambs. Take care of my sheep. Feed my sheep. Someone once said, you ask me what forgiveness means? It is the wonder of being trusted again by God in the place where I disgraced him. This is what Jesus does for Peter. And what he longs to do for you. Peter is then told by Jesus, I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted, but 
When you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you to where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. That term, stretch out your hands, was used in the Roman world to describe crucifixion. Have you ever wondered how Peter coped with the knowledge of that? Serving the Lord Jesus faithfully every day of his life, but knowing that one day the authorities would come knocking on the door and drag him away to be crucified, which he was. And so it's not surprising to us that he turns around on that beach and looks back and sees John and says, well, what about him? Referring to John. Well, friends, Jesus' plan for our lives might be different for every single one of us. We're not to look over our shoulder. Our task isn't to look over and see what the Lord's intentions are for that person over there, but to humbly say, Lord, what are your plans for me? Because Jesus' reply to Peter was simply this, don't worry about him. It's you I'm speaking to. You must follow me, which literally means this. Peter, travel with me. Travel with me. And travel he did, even to death on the cross. And we too must follow wherever he calls us, wherever he leads us, whatever the cost. You know, Peter never forgot that meal on the beach. But more memorable than that was the sweet taste of forgiveness. That remained with him forever. John White says this, No power on earth can touch the power of forgiveness and pardon. It can straighten the shoulders of a discouraged person. It can break the chains of guilt and shame. And it can bring joy and liberty to the heart which experiences and renewed loyalty in the service of our Lord. Tell me, are you still bowed down from your guilt and your failures? And perhaps you have been for many years. Is it time for a full confession so that you might receive full forgiveness? Or time that you forgave yourself for the sin which God forgave you a long time ago? Because, as Peter Lewis said, there might be many things in your life that are inexcusable, but there is nothing that is unforgivable. Praise God. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. And let me start by asking, is there someone here this evening and you have never for the first time received Christ's forgiveness?
You've never bowed your knee and asked this risen Jesus who died on the cross for your sin to come into your life. Then, friends, if you desire him and you desire to repent of your sin and come to him, he will receive you. He is the friend of sinners. He is the Savior of sinners. Come to Him this evening without delay. And if you are someone who has walked with Him, but your loyalties have faded, you've allowed other things to, to come in the way, you have failed terribly in moral sin. I beg you to come to this Jesus who stands on the shoreline of your life and longs to offer you forgiveness if you are truly repentant. Rise up and follow him, for there is still a ministry to do. There is still work he wants you to be involved in. There is still service for your merciful King. Heavenly Father, apply this word, I pray, and allow people to see the face of Jesus, His kindness, His goodness, His grace. Amen.